Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. So I'm here today with Sam Mackey, who is the head of practice for the Griffith Climate Action Beacon. He's also the executive director of the Climate Ready Initiative and a non-executive director of the international development NGO Live and Learn. Sam, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Liana. Thanks for having me. So, Sam, I'm going to start you off with a question I ask all our guests, which is if you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? Well, it would be nice if we were relevant in a world that's rapidly moving towards low carbon and, and, and being resilient to the impacts that are already locked into the system and continuing to grow. I think that Australia has the capability and the resources to be really significant. It's just a matter of whether we have the policy environment and, and the investment to be able to do it. I think a big part of that in my mind is around trying to make sure that the, the model of growth that we use, manufacturing growth, actually translates to this idea of green growth and, and, and new types of development. We talk a lot about jobs and, and we talk a lot about green finance and all these sorts of things. But primarily, we need industry to be investing in what a transition is going to look like. We need communities to be part of that, that solution and be on board with it. And we need an environment to be there and thriving into the future because it's the backbone of, the, of our society. So it's hard to say specifically what jobs and the fabric of community will look like. But what we know is that we need to have a smart growth model. It needs to be a good development model. We need to be not naive to the fact that the world's shifting and we want to have a position in that. And ultimately, I think prosperity in Australia will be dependent on how we meet that challenge. So relevant is the big theme for you? Yeah, I, I don't know what percentage Australia's GDP, for example, makes up of the world's GDP. You would assume that what the world does is relevant for Australia, but Australia isn't necessarily relevant for the world. So we need to be making sure that we've got our feelers out to what's happening there. And it seems like it's shifting pretty significantly towards ideas of sustainable development, transition of energy and all this sort of stuff. And the challenge for us is to be relevant and be prosperous in that new world. And what's happening now, and we need to be figuring out how we can invest in the industries and have the growth model that makes sure that we're a good part of that, I think. So Sam, what are you working on at the moment? The Climate Ready Initiative. It's an initiative that's recognising that Australia needs to rapidly change the way that we, we behave around both energy and, and, and emissions, but also in how we're engaging with what will be potentially future climate risk areas and impacts. And it's trying to enable an opportunity for people that are very interested in participating in this to try and identify what the vision and the pathway is for that development. So, so we're partway through articulating what a climate ready Australia could look like. And ultimately, we're trying to create a vision for the conditions that we might need in this country to have a successful sustainable development pathway. You're at Griffith University. How does the Climate Ready Initiative fit with Griffith University? What's the broader context in which you're operating? We have in our new strategic plan at Griffith this strong desire to be engaging uh, with society to try and address 
more or less grand challenges of which climate action was flagged as one. So we're thinking about society, how we can provide public good support to society to advance climate action. So it's a little bit to get your head around, but it's, I guess we've got a shifting world because of the big externality of climate change. We've got a shifting landscape in the university sector towards more practice and impact. And I'm traversing those two things. The thing about universities that's very unique, they've got this sort of honest brokerage role in society. People trust universities because they have strong ethical standards and behaviours. They've always had the ability to convene society around issues. It's a starting point for any sort of significant societal change process like what we're dealing with in, in climate action is being able to coalesce people around the issue and being able to actually have trusted information. So universities have a very key role to play that in that honest brokerage role. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you're not there trying to market your own product or policy, you're more respected as objective. That makes sense. Thank you for that little segue. I think it does help listeners to just get a sense for where you fit and, and where you're coming from. So you talked about the Climate Ready Initiative looking to develop a strategy or a point of view about what Australia could look like and how we could manage this transition. How is that strategy being developed? Is that sort of a small group of people in a room looking at what's happening in the rest of the world or what's the process as you're going through? Yeah, so it's a long process. <laughs> Feels like it's taking quite a considerable amount of time, but I guess the challenge is significant, so it deserves it. We, we started with the proposition that the world will shift and we need some significant leaders in Australia, representative of different types of community across Australia, to come together and put their ideas and support behind what's possible. That group has helped us shape our concept, which is more or less a starting point for engagement with other partners, and we have many of those already, um, and we're looking to generate some new ones. And it's really from that visioning document that we can actually start to engage with those that... You know, if, if you take a leaf out of the EU's book, those that will actually deliver the transition, which is business and community, we can engage with them off the back of that vision to start thinking about what's the agenda they want to develop and follow, because ultimately they will be the investors in it. So it's one of these journey things, Liana, if you follow what I mean, but I think all good growth models and change processes have to be a journey because there's many stakeholders and people need to have their hand on the wheel to feel ownership and then they really invest and engage and that's what we're seeking to do as an approach here. Yeah. So a broad-based representative board that covers a whole lot of different backgrounds and industries trying to articulate a vision for where you might want to get to and then really engaging the people who will need to be driving this change, so communities, corporates and governments, to then think through the next steps. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It starts with agenda setting. In finance, they call it market shaping, but more or less it's the same thing. And the best example of it around the world in this area that you can see is what's called the PACT program in the EU, where I think, give or take, they said the commitment of the EU was to give about 20% of, on average, budget support of EU member countries towards helping advance climate action under the expectation that business, industry and communities will engage with that funding to deliver the transition and the resilience that's needed. So that's, that's how markets work, really. You create the enabling environment 
and the value gets generated by those that participate in it and you protect the kind of integrity of, of the market so it doesn't become inequitable and these sorts of things to ensure that they, people can have confidence to do that. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the Climate Ready Initiative. You have a background in international development and I'd like to hear a little bit more about that and where you see connection points to what you're doing now, if you do. I studied development studies. That was the postgraduate masters that I did. I spent the early part of my career working in Asia and the Pacific on development projects, be them for aid agencies like the Australian government aid agency or New Zealand government aid agencies. And I've done a fair bit of work for our regional development bank, the Asian development bank. And I guess I was always interested in the idea of, of development because I saw it as a way of creating opportunity. So the, the big objective of any activity, no matter how big or small that you do in a development sector project, is that you have to work from where the money's coming from all the way through to how you can design something to disperse that money to be effective all the way through to the ground where there's some sort of social change or impact. The reason I got into what was then climate policy work is because, so this was late 2000s, and then the common externality that was coming up in all those investments was climate change. And it occurred to me that policy around climate change would be a good area to get into because then you're thinking about, okay, what's the role of government in trying to set the enabling environment to address this issue. And so I spent some time in the Queensland government working in policy implementation around agricultural natural resource sector and, and, and biodiversity. And then from there, got picked up to work with Griffith pretty well in the area of climate change. And I keep a toe in the water with the development work now with my work with Live and Learn International, not a huge amount, but it's a way that I can stay in touch with how the development sector is evolving, because I think those models are becoming increasingly relevant for delivering on climate action. So just a little bit more kind of context for people who might not be enmeshed in the development space. Two things. You talked about it's about making sure that the money flows. My understanding of much of the work that um, comes out of development is that you've got countries who are economically well off and what they're trying to do is shore up other countries. So they're trying to increase the economic activity and ultimately independence of those countries and also in some cases the stability of those countries right so generally speaking countries that are better off less likely to have a refugee crisis less likely to go into conflict and therefore a safer neighbors to have is that a reasonable summary yeah that, that's reasonable there's two angles to it and, and they come together there's social development and there's economic development and i think the the 101 of economic development is that Basically, markets are central, not because they're intrinsically good or bad, but just because they're the mechanism for which people can exchange value. And the idea is that with the right institutions to support that in a helpful way, not too much, not too little, you actually avoid inequalities. The theory is that a market is democratic in a way when it's properly regulated. And it stops people being exploited because it has good information. It's quite clear on where the values are going. So it, it, it stops perpetuating inequality, which increases stability and has all the political spin-offs as you touch on. And then the other side of it is just the basic concept of growth. 
so when you have stability, you have investment and then that creates opportunity. But I think there's been some hard lessons in development that have been learned over time. You can throw all the money in the world at trying to solve an economic or a social problem in a developing country. But what you actually do with the beneficiaries to make sure that there's lasting capability to deal with it really matters. Development is all about trying to create opportunity and structurally create an economy and a condition in a country that's conducive to that. To your point around the relationship between developed and developing countries, I think people figured out a long time ago that it's in everyone's interest for there to be more stability, more productivity, more consumption, more relationships between countries, because that just enhances prosperity across the board. It's not a zero-sum thing. Thank you. And then the other thing that you mentioned, which again, I think it might strike many people as quite surprising. You said that a lot of that development work had a climate change kind of element to it. Why is that? I think there's a lot of reasons and they probably stem from a lot of developing countries are often by nature heavily environmentally dependent. So there's significant what's known as subsistence type livelihoods. So there's that. The other one is this idea of externalities not being valued into well-established functioning markets is that climate change is the ultimate externality because it's the planet, right? You might be able to escape a little bit of pollution into the atmosphere, but you can't escape the planet. Although Elon Musk might have a plan for that. But the idea with the externality is that the people that get the rawest deal, it's the same old story, the people that get the rawest deal in a global economy are those that that are most vulnerable and they tend to be those in developing countries in terms of climate change negotiations. You see that politically. And I think there's two elements to that, just to sum it up. I think there's the the fact that um, your position to play a role in what a future looks like and not be impacted or be resilient to to a future as well depends on your position in developing your developed world. That's a power thing in a way. And the other is that ultimately that countries themselves that are developing by nature just tend to be more connected to the environment and the environmental change from climate change is significant. So there are countries who are actually right now experiencing impacts of climate change in ways that are impacting their economy directly, so presumably not unlike the the Australian bushfires. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Concerns around the coral bleaching through the Asia Pacific. There's concerns around particular commodities from highlands of New Guinea that have always been in a stable, temperate environment and, and how they're changing. They're all manner of subsistence based concerns around that. And then there's what platform does a developing country have compared to a developed country to engage in the opportunities of the future? It's quite a confronting question, really, because it's basically traditional power dynamics in many ways. I think this has probably been why the Pacific Islands have been effective because they've come together as one uh, group of islands in in advocating for the change. But still, their voice is not being fully heard, I don't think. So great. So we're talking about countries that need support to become more prosperous, more stable, and also countries that are really feeling at the moment already firsthand impacts of climate change and are less positioned to take advantage of the upside of these new shifts. They're not out there building huge wind farms or solar panels or investing in technology. So given all of that, 
what are lessons that might be applicable from the mistakes that have been made in development as well as the things that have worked? Are there a couple of things that you'd really call out that we should be thinking about as we're managing this quite complicated transition? Yeah, I think that for me, the biggest concern I've got is we talk a lot about the word finance, a great part of the solution, but on its own kind of spooks me a little bit because what's happened in development over past decades has been that the money dictates the way in which the investment happens and the standards of reporting for the investment and so on. And and this is where these ideas of austerity measures have always been able to be, you know, implemented in development arrangements. And so I'm just anxious about us not learning from the lesson of development, which is that private finance won't solve our collective public good. Where development has been most effective has been because you've had a public good agenda that's been set in close collaboration with beneficiaries. And that's resulted in some kind of initial public investment that can deliver really private finance outcomes and and therefore private finance invests. I think one of the lessons is we need to make sure that the agenda setting has a public good centre to it to some degree. The other one is that ultimately there actually are practical models. So there's this idea, which I'm sure you and maybe some of your listeners might be familiar with. It's this idea of blended finance. Many people have many interests in the same thing. If we can actually bring people together so they can have a role and and, and they can see they're not doing all the heavy lifting, they're more likely to, and they're leveraging something, they're more likely to participate or invest. And there've been all manner of actual practical models that we can use to do that domestically here in Australia that have been worked out over the last decade or so. I think last time I saw, I think the figure of, and don't quote me on this, I think the figure of blended finance investment in the international development space from the private sector was about 140 million over the last decade. So it's not when it's not getting into the huge trillion amounts, but it just shows that there's an appetite for private investment where there is a good, stable public good base. And then I just think that just really basic delivery mechanisms that are very common in like the like this idea of a facility that gets established with every other World Bank or Asian Development Bank activity that sort of facilitates the process between the finance and the beneficiary on the ground. And they've got very niche kind of institutional models and arrangements that they go about for creating those and assuring them that, 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 that yes, we're delivering financial outcomes. Yes, we're delivering social outcomes. And you know, we invest in these things through our own aid programs, often into the multilaterals that deliver them, but we just don't seem to be bringing the same knowledge that our investment is creating back into our own development pathway or strategy, which is critical. What would that look like if we were to do that here? Are you talking about making sure that there's someone who sits in between? So maybe it's there's some government money, there's some corporate money coming in and together they're investing in a big renewable facility and, and it, is it about saying there's some group that's in the middle that says, okay, great, we'll make sure the money gets here, but we're also going to track what's happening so that it's not, that we can agree what is it that we are trying to achieve with this money. So if there's public money, we expect that there'll be some outcomes that benefit everybody, not just the company that's going in. Is that what you mean? So somebody who sits in the middle and can be a bit of an honest broker about... Yeah, that's right. And, and by definition... Yeah. 
they're facilitators in that type of model. You are trying to you're trying to broker or facilitate the the investment and social impact outcomes. There's that. But look, I'll just take a step back from that to answer your question. I don't I hope I'm not jumping the gun here and what you want to ask, but I think that would be a great thing. But I also think and see around the world that what's happening is advanced economies, our major partners are actually developing domestic development banks. It's quite incredible. So the US has been, there's significant lobbying in the US now post-COVID to have a domestic development bank. There's two, there's, there are at least two domestic, or I don't know whether you could use the word domestic, but EU-focused, EU-based development banks. And, and as I understand it, there's a big push underway within the UK to have a, a development bank for the UK. Scotland's just developed one. So I guess what I'm saying is that maybe not even the models, but maybe actually just the crude institution of a development bank is almost what we need to solve this sustainable development problem. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we're trying to do with our climate ready work. It's much more targeted than that. But I, I, I think there's a trend there that people probably domestically here need to be tracking, which is the fact that our trade partners are starting to invest in their own growth and they're creating institutions to do it. And I think, I think that's a pretty big signal for the, way, for the way that they're framing up the challenge of climate action and post-pandemic. I think one of the interesting things that I've learned as we've done this research uh, into what Australians understand about climate change and how they feel about it is that depending on where people sit politically around the use of regulation, it impacts their perception of and kind of confidence in the climate science. So if you have somebody who inherently is anxious about regulation and sees that regulation reduces productivity, and then you say, the response to climate change needs to be more regulation, then they're less confident in the climate science. If you have somebody with the same points of view and you say, actually, the solution is a free market solution and doesn't require regulation, then they're more open to the science, which is simply to say that the solutions that we use are, I think, a big contributor to the, the politicisation of climate change as a subject in Australia. And I bring that up because as you're talking, I can imagine some people who are more coming from the free market angle of saying, gee, wow, you're not just talking about regulation, you're talking about all of these kind of big institutions, you know, living large off the public purse and getting big for the sake of getting big. And, and did the development really work or, or is it just a lot of people swatting around to international conferences? Now, that's a pretty provocative position, but I... I'm raising it because I think that there are people who might be listening who might have that question themselves. How do we make sure we're striking the right balance? There's only a limited amount of money to go around. And what we all want to do, I think, is make sure that's really deployed efficiently and you're getting the best outcomes for that investment. How do we make sure that we're not just creating institutions for the sake of it? The capability of markets to be efficient has always been this idea of, of institutions. And, and, and in fact, Pretty well, most people would argue that one of the fundamental indicators of a healthy market-based economy is actually the strength of institutions. Now, 
I understand your point, but one of the fundamental principles is that institutions actually avoid some of the things that you're talking about. I can see how in the past there would be circumstances where people would think that there haven't been outcomes that have been delivered, but the high end of town has benefited and that's probably been the case. But I think where the institutions are actually well regulated, there's, they're always a good indicator for whether there's more democracy in a market or an economy. Very interesting. So you're obviously thinking about ideas as to how we support Australia to maintain relevance and prosperity. Do you have a big idea that would safeguard our economic and environmental future? This initiative's trying to put a process in place that can spawn that. So I don't really want to prejudice that in any way. But if I could reframe your question to say what I think could happen over time and and how it might work. I think basically if Australia can have the opportunity to create an agenda that's representative of many of the common issues that we're facing, because I think that's the thing about climate change is that it's a very hard thing for one individual company or sector to stand up and shoulder the burden of because it's they're only one part of the way it's intersecting with, say, that part of society. So the transaction cost cuts across all of society, but no one group can shoulder that. And I think the first step in that, to use a leaf out of development, is to actually help facilitate a process of a common agenda because what you can do is you can start to actually identify common pressure points and work towards reducing that transaction cost and, and therefore the entry point or the participation in that market. And when I say market, I'm not always talking about monetary. It's just the process of creating the value that society is seeking to create. It becomes much easier. So I think the first thing we need is we need some kind of common or shared agenda. And if it can be representative and done in a way that people feel that they've had a hand on the steering wheel and it is diverse enough, it's not just touting towards a few interest groups and so on, then you you have a pretty strong sense of where investment has to go. That's really what it comes down to. But getting back to my points around development, you see what you've done is you've created more the the public good agenda that investment has confidence to participate in rather than the other way around. And then I think really you can start to address some of the bigger issues because people understand how they work uh, across the divide. And then really it comes down to these big questions of development, which are the structural things we've spoken about. How would the World Bank create a fund to do this? They would just spin one up and, and they would create an initiative that has an objective and they would create investment vehicles that meet the needs of the beneficiaries. If they're communities, they might be grants and they're going to deliver a social or economic return on investment that's needed. If they're private sector development or innovation activities, then they might be loans. The key there is just to make sure that whatever the vehicles are there, they tend to be what's regulated by the prudential regulator because that's how business already thinks and functions and it lowers the bar for them to participate. But the big structural stuff is what we then really need because then we can address the real strategic stuff at scale and that's where facilities come in because they can help broker broker both the investment and the disbursement and the delivery on the ground and the assurance and all this sort of stuff and then finally all i would say is i can't really imagine a significant climate change solution being addressed in any country that just involved the smarts of one group it really is going to have to involve some ability to pre-assemble capability to deal with these things. I think if we're just looking at them on case-by-case basis and trying to assemble what we need on a case-by-case basis, we're just going to relive the same cost over and over again. I think we need to get smart about how, how we assemble ourselves to be able to address this. And I think 
I don't think there's any shortage of management consultants or universities or experts or think tanks wanting to participate in that space. But at the moment, it's all very dispersed. Interesting. If I just try to play back what I'm hearing, it's not that we haven't transitioned our economy before. It's just that it needs to happen at a much faster pace than anything we've done before. And so when you're trying to, as a result, stimulate a whole lot of new sectors and new businesses and technologies, we don't have all those structures in place. You're saying an important thing that we can borrow from development is thinking about those institutions and structures so that you can get money to people, you can measure that the outcomes are, are happening and, and you can be confident that those organisations are having a little bit of oversight and independence away from kind of day-to-day political processes or specific corporate interests. And then I hear you saying that, and I thought we would talk a little bit more about this actually, but that the people who need to be consulted are the people on the ground who are most impacted. Because I've not had loads to do with development, but I've had some. And I guess my big learning was just how often projects have gone badly in the past because the people who were on the ground weren't asked about how it would work. So people actually engaging with the people who are most impacted because that's where the knowledge and experience comes from and the best ideas come from the ground. So programs about making sure that kids didn't die from rehydration were really successful when they talked to mothers about what containers do you have in your house so that you can mix up a solution that's going to hydrate kids. And then that third thing, which is making sure that we are working together, not loads of different organisations and, and people with ideas pulling off in different directions, but actually coming together to work together in a really efficient and streamlined way like we've had to do with COVID. I think there's been some good examples of state governments pulling together people from health, people from transport, people from education and coming together and working in a really structured way. Have have I understood that correctly? Yeah, I think so. And to your point around people on the ground, I couldn't agree more. And that's a topic of its own. That's when I was talking about social development. That's what that's actually about. That's about trying to make sure that we don't get too caught up in our own big theories of economy and this sort of stuff when we actually make sure we're delivering things for people on the ground. And the best way to do that is to empower people to be the determinants of their own future. And so I couldn't agree more with that. And all I would add to those three things is I think what we also need in Australia is a bit of a refresher on how markets work. We seem to have this sense that we can just keep being the economy and jobs that we have. And in many ways, if, if climate change wasn't a problem, I wish we could because disruption is problematic. But the fact is, it's just unrealistic to assume that as you've got underlying changing values globally about what we value as a global society and in countries as well, and, and driven primarily by the need to respond to climate change. I just think as a nation, we need to debunk this furphy that we can stay the way we are. It's just going to result in a whole world of pain. And when people talk about being left behind, I think that's what they're talking about, thinking that we can keep things as they are and the world moves on. Unfortunately, what markets do is they just trample over that sort of stuff. They just move on. That's the harsh side of it. Yep, that's true. can be pretty merciless when it happens. So you don't want to be in a situation where no one's going to buy your coal and you haven't thought about what happens to people. You actually want to be on the front foot thinking about how do we help people transition into new careers so that people are looked after. Yeah, that's right. 
I think Australia has been very lucky to have in its endowments. And that's been very helpful for that period of prosperity. But we can't now just shun the way that society is valuing things, which gets represented in, in more or less in that sort of economy and market space. To try and protect that, it's just unrealistic. And people just become collateral in that. And I think it's just about being real about how that's going to happen. And to my point earlier on that I don't know what percentage Australia's GDP looks like in terms of the global one, but, I, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the tail wagging the dog. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good point. We're small and that's been the argument for not doing much on climate change, but that could really come back to bite us because we're small. <laughs> um, and the opportunistic view of that, if we get it right, the benefit is whatever the other size of or what the world GDP minus Australia's GDP is. So that could be 99 point something percent of the world GDP. So if we get it right, we've got a model, we've got a position and when we can engage in a much more meaningful way in what might be the new values and growth of the world. So, so that's the other thing. We can't just think about the cost. It has to be cost and benefit. If we engage in the cost of dealing with the issue, the externality, we actually position ourselves to benefit. We can't be naive of that as well. Yeah. Gosh, very wide-ranging discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Sam. If people are interested to learn more about the Climate Ready Initiative and the work that Griffith is doing, how would they track you down? So they can go to the website. It's www.climatereadyinitiative.com.au. I guess the only other point I'd make is that this is how we're framing the work we're doing now. It is a big agenda, but we've been doing a lot of this stuff for a long time now, probably over a decade. And so we have a lot of lasting initiatives and existing partners of you know, people that are aware of this work and seeking to engage with this on new initiatives, everything from community-based stuff all the way through to investment and, and, and government-type work. Great. Thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure and good luck with your work. Thanks, Liana. Bye. Bye. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.